Well, we are here today, and uh, the best I can decide is that all of us that are here today are those that did not get invited to a New Year's Eve party. (laughs) So we decided to show up for a Sunday morning. But seriously, there are many who uh, were a part of New Year's Eve last night, and I think probably we should uh, say a prayer for them. Uh, Something like, God, give them a headache, Um, bloat up their bellies, and place eye boogers in them today, (laughs) that they will never again miss a Sunday morning service because of New Year's Eve. We're glad that you're here. Uh, We know that the weather's cooperated, and we haven't had any snow to shovel, and we're glad that we're able to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If I were to tell you that after the service, we are going to put on our running shoes and go for a run, I probably would not get a very good response. Most of you are not really into running. As you can tell by looking at me, I'm not really into running. Uh, I have ran in the past. Uh, That's been a part of what I've done as far as trying to stay active, but I'm really not a runner. My son, when he was about six years old, we were pastoring our first church, and at that time, I was obviously many years younger and less poundage than what I am now. And, and on occasion throughout the week, I would go out and just simply jog a mile two or three times a week just to kind of keep things limbered up. And my son comes to me and he says, Dad, can I jog with you? And I said, well, Nathan, you know, I mean, here he is, six-year-old kid. Uh, I said, I'm not so sure it's a good idea. Why is that? I said, because when I start jogging, I don't stop. I didn't tell him I don't stop because I can't start up again. It's just once I start, I don't stop. He said, that's okay. He said, I'll jog with you. So we started off on this mile run throughout our small town, and here this little six-year-old fella is along beside his dad, and, and we're jogging, not running at fast speed, but we're jogging, and he's matching me step for step. And we get all the way back to the house. He goes in the house. He lays down on the Davenport, and he's holding his stomach. And Barbara comes in. She said, honey, what's the matter? Is it your stomach hurting? He said, Yes. She said, why is that? He said, said, my stomach's hurting because I've been running. She said, well, why did you run? He said, well, Dad told me that if we stopped, we had to go back. And he said, I just had to keep going. And I knew from that day forward that this uh, young boy was going to be pretty special. And and he has used that uh, tenacity throughout his life in, in all that he does But there was something in that conversation, and we didn't talk the whole mile we were jogging, but in his mind, all he heard his father say was, if we stop, we're we're going to have to go back. This morning, I want to bring to you a reminder and also a word of encouragement and a challenge all three combined because I believe that God has given me a message that that helps set the, the tone for this coming year. 2012. And the title of the message is just simply Run Church Run. And that was long before Forrest Gump came came along. But here we are in a setting 
that we're realizing that the importance of running. Now, I don't know if we have any marathoners in our congregation today, but those who run a marathon understand that basically a marathon is 26.2 miles. And those who have trained and those prepared themselves for this marathon generally know how long it's going to take them to get to the finish line. And they know specifically that from the start of the race to the finish line is 26.2 miles. In other words, they know when they hit the finish line. Unlike a marathon, you and I are in the middle of a race. Whether we want to admit it or not, or whether we even understand it or not, we are in a race called the human race. We are running a race It's a journey, but it's a race that we're running for God. The unfortunate part about this race is that we don't know where the finish line is until we cross it. And I have to tell you, over the years of pastoring and the years that I've been here a part of Erie First, I've done far too many funerals for infants, teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, boys and girls, men and women in the prime of their life. But all of a sudden, they hit the finish line and life was over. When we, when we get a hold of this and understand what, what is happening here, the writer of Hebrews gives us a picture. And this is what he has to say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Here are the words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That word perseverance simply means to persist regardless of the opposition or difficulties. The synonyms for that word is gut it out, hang on. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to, in chapter 12, following chapter 11, which is all the great men and women of faith, he says, I've given you Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. I've given you all of these people, these great men and women of faith. Therefore, seeing as we are encompassed by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run the race. And if you will, I want you to visualize with me today, and the sanctuary provides a perfect visual for this, that you are sitting in the stands. You are part of that great cloud of witnesses. And in your midst, there are people that we are going to call forward this morning that's going to share truth with us as we are in the midst of this race. When we, when we catch this concept and we understand and visually that these men and women of faith, that, that we're surrounded by them and we're running this race, some of us are just beginning the race, some are in the middle, some are toward the end. We really don't know where that finish line is until we get there. And there are many people that I could have called out of the stands this morning, but there are some that I want to bring to your attention because they help us out. So here's what I need you to do 
with me today. I want you to visualize yourself running the race of life. And as you are running, there are people that are going to come out of the stands, this great cloud of witnesses that's going to come and run along beside you and share with you something that's going to help you to continue to run. The first person that that I could have called is a woman by the name of Esther. And as you're running this race, Esther is coming out of the stands, and she comes up along beside you, and she's running along with you, and she simply says this, there is no place that is out of place when it's in God's place. Now, all the things that I'm sharing with you are messages by themselves. But something that I'm saying this morning, I trust, is going to click with us. It's going to apply to those of us who are running this race, and it's going to become a word of encouragement. So maybe you are feeling out of place. Maybe in your race that you are running, you just don't feel a fit. And Esther comes along beside you and says, there is no place that is out of place when you're in God's place. So we continue the race, we continue the running, and out of this great cloud of witnesses comes another man. And as he gets closer, you've read about him, you've heard the stories about him. As he gets a little bit closer, he comes up beside you, and as he's running with you, he says, my name is Joseph. And while you are running this race, I just want you to know, self-promotion will never take the place of divine promotion. Because part of your race in life has been to try to get all you can and grab the gusto and get the self-promotion and, and, and get all of the incentives that go with it. But he's reminding you because in your weariness of running, he now comes and says, self-promotion will never replace divine promotion. So you continue to run and you continue to become weary in that race and out of this great cloud of witnesses comes another person and the minute you see him, you recognize him because of all of the stories and the pictures that you have read about him and he comes along and he begins to jog with you and he says, good morning, my name is Moses. And while you're running in this race of life, I just have one thing that I want you to know. Always live in the faith zone and not in the safe zone. So important as we run this race of life. As a church, as an individual, that we're running in the race that God has called us to, that God will call us to run in a faith zone, never in a safe zone. And we continue through these people who are coming out of the stands. And the next lady that comes down joins us in this race. And her name is Rebecca. Rebecca says this, extra blessings result from extra effort. In other words, if you are faithful in this race, if you are committed to this race, 
If you accept responsibilities for this race, in the end, there will be great rewards. But it will require extra effort to receive the extra blessings. And so we continue on. And the next man that comes out of the great cloud of witnesses comes down and joins us in this race. And his name is Abraham. And while you're running and while you're weary and you just really feel like giving up because you, you have admitted to yourself a long time ago that you're not perfect. See, that's something that I got settled in my heart many, 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 many years ago that I'm not perfect. But as Abraham is running with you in this race, here's what he says. Perfection is not a prerequisite for God to work. Perfection is not a prerequisite for God to work. If perfection was a requirement, I believe in my heart today, there would be no pastors, there would be no missionaries, there would be no Sunday school teachers, there would be no evangelist, because we're not perfect. So with that word of encouragement, Abraham comes along and says, even in the midst of the imperfections, keep on running. Run, church, run. Because you know we're not a perfect church. Because we're made up of imperfect people. But he says, you got to keep on running. Now, we could have taken each one of these characters and each one of them in themselves is a standalone sermon. But I've decided this morning to take two people that I want to bring to your attention. So as we're running in this race, this person who's coming down joins us and he says, my name is Noah. And while you're running this race of life, I'm here to tell you that one person can make a difference. You know the story of Noah. You've heard it many, many times. I'll just paraphrase it for you. One day, God seen fit that he was fed up with what was happening in the world. In fact, let's take a look at what he says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. See, here's what was taking place. God said to Noah, Noah, I want you to build a boat. Noah said back to God, God, we don't even have water. I don't know what a boat looks like. God said to Noah, you build the boat, I'll provide the water. But God, I don't know what size of a boat to build. And God said, don't worry, I'll tell you. So Noah goes down to Lowe's and he gets his tools and his saws and his planers and all of the 
nails and fasteners that he needs. He comes back and God says, here's how many cubits long. Here's how many cubits wide. Here's how many cubits high. Noah, start building. And Noah's saying, but God, it's just me. And God says, I know, but one can make a difference. You see, friends, we must believe in the power of one. That can be positive or that can be negative. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, it says that on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one accord, they were in one mind, waiting for the promise of the Father. None of them were uninterested, unconcerned, or lukewarm. Because before the day of Pentecost, there was one who had risen from the dead. There was one who had ascended to the Father. There was one who said, I will send you a comforter. And the 120 were waiting in one mind and one accord. Can you imagine with me the effects it would have on our church in running this race if everyone that walked through our doors was in one mind and one accord? That we came into this building, none of us uninterested, none of us unconcerned, none of us lukewarm, but we have come on this Sunday morning waiting for the promise of the Father because one person, gave us a promise. In Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells us that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one name. He even talks in Thessalonians about one day. One day, we heard that alluded to a few moments ago when Jeff Wong was serving communion. He said, Jesus is coming again. One day, Gabriel is going to blow his trumpet. One day, Jesus is coming back. One day, the church is going to be raptured. One day, life as we know it will come to an end because of the power of one. And as you're running this race and you feel insignificant, Noah is here to tell you this morning that one can make a difference. Turn to that person beside you today, look them right in the eye and say, you can make a difference. Say it with conviction. You can make a difference. If you really feel brave, say, you will make a difference. See, that's what we need to understand when we're in this race. You can make a difference for your family. This past Christmas, I really didn't know what to get my parents. They live a very simple lifestyle. My stepfather works part-time. My mother is in the home, and she's fixing of the meals and taking care of the home. They spend most of their uh, evenings watching Gaither videos. 
They get up the next morning and life continues to go on. But many, many years ago, my mother gave me several cans of eight millimeter film that was taken back in the early 60s. I'd never seen them. My mom had not seen them in, in, in probably that many number of years, and I've just had them in my garage. So I got this idea. I took them down to a company here in Erie, and I had those eight millimeter films put on a DVD. And I took that home to mom for Christmas. And of course, she enjoyed it, but I'm sitting there watching this because I was around 10, 11, 12 years of age. And I'm watching my life as it's transpiring through these years. And several thoughts are crossing my mind. And, and one of the first ones was this. Where I was raised, I did not have prestige. I did not have status. I did not have any silver spoons in my mouth. I did not have any extra comforts of life. I did not have any connections, people that know people that knew people. And I'm watching this DVD and I'm thinking to myself, what a blessed person I am to be where I am today. Because in all rights, there's nothing that happened in my life that I really deserve to be where I am today. And as I looked through that period of time and how where God has brought me today, where God has provided me with a beautiful wife more than I deserve over 40, 42 years this coming March, two wonderful, handsome boys, two precious daughter-in-laws, and four really rambunctious grandkids. And I looked at that DVD, and I'm trying, I'm trying to think of, God, how did I get from here at 10, 11, 12 years of age to over here in my 60s? How did that happen? And as I'm sitting there watching this with my mother, I'm, it just came to me, Don, that has happened because you had a mother that knew how to pray. My mother has always been an intercessor. She's always prayed. And I believe that there's been times in my life that God has, has spared me and I have been spared very difficult situations simply because my mother knew how to pray. So friends, if you're feeling insignificant this morning, and you feel like that you really have nothing to contribute to life, that you have nothing that you can add value to in your already existing world, let me say to you this morning that one can make a difference for your family. I've heard my mother pray, and I've seen the results of her praying for her sisters and her brothers, for her nieces and her nephews, for her grandchildren, and I've watched the results of how God's hand has moved in many of their lives because someone decided to make a difference with their family. And I want to show you a short clip here, something I think I, it, it touched me and the importance and significance of somebody making a difference with their family.
Derek Redmond in the best form he's shown since he broke the British record. Kevin Hernandez has got uh, Redmond to aim at, and so too in line number three is Steve Lewis, but Redmond's got off very fast indeed, and so too is Ismail of Qatar. Down the back straight, he's the fractional leader. Bada of Nigeria has gone very quickly, and Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, on his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. Running down the back straight, I heard a funny clap or a pop, and I honestly, for a split second, thought I'd been shot. Uh, and then, obviously, I realised I've, I've pulled a hamstring. And then, when the pain sort of died down, I remembered where I was and what I was doing. And I remember thinking, "Quick, you're in the Olympic semi-finals. You prat, get up and start running." And I got to the 200 meter mark after hobbling 50 meters, and looked across, and all the guys had finished. And it pretty much hit me that, you know, it ain't going to happen. It's all over. He just wants to finish. His dad's trying to run under the track to stop him. He's going to tell him, Derek, don't. The old man went to put his arms around me, and I was just about to try and push him off because I thought it was someone else. I didn't see him. He sort of jogged from behind. And uh, he said, look, you don't need to do this. You can stop now. You haven't got nothing to prove. And I said, oh, I have. You know, get me back into lane five. I want to finish. Now in the greatest arena in sport, He's getting the chair of the games. Don't tell me that you can't make a difference with your family. The analogy with that video clip was this. You and I are in this race of life, and sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes we get crippled. Sometimes we feel like we just can't finish. But our father comes out of the stands and he says, let me help you. Lean on me. Cast all your cares on me because I'll see you through this. And friends, I know that the race is tough and I know that it's grueling. And I know there are many difficulties and disappointments and heartaches that we face. But let me assure you of this this morning. There's a God in heaven, your Father, that loves you so much that he will step out onto the track no matter where you're at. And he'll come along beside and say, let me make a difference. You see, one can make a difference for our family you can make a difference for future generations. I was thinking about our, our church. I was thinking about the generations in our church. If I could this morning, I would have us all file out of the sanctuary and I would take you over to the nursery. You couldn't all fit in the nursery at the same time, but I would file you single file through our nursery and let you look at the babies and the toddlers and those nursery workers who are holding those babies, and we encourage them that this is not a job, it's a ministry. When you come in on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and you're holding someone else's baby in your arms, it's just not a matter of pacifying them, but it's an opportune time for you to say, God, I'm holding a future generation in my hand. 
Now, God, I'm asking that you will protect this young baby, that you will preserve him or her, that you will strengthen him or her, that, Father, for future generations, this child will be raised to know you and to serve you and to love you and to make a difference in their world. Father, I pray for this infant in your name. And now I could walk you over to Inside Out, our first through fifth graders, And let you walk around and just place your hand on their heads and say, God, I pray that for future generations that you raise these children up to know you and to serve you. Because here's here's the bottom line, friends. Those babies, by the time they become adults, many of us will not be in this life. Many of us will have crossed the finish line. And what we do now, the difference that we make now for future generations depends on how we see God able to use us. There was a young man who observed a man in his 80s planting an apple orchard. The old man very lovingly and painstakingly prepared the soil, planted the little saplings, and watered them. And after a bit of time had went by and watching for a while, the young man said to this older man, you don't expect to eat those apples. And the older gentleman replied, no, but somebody will. You see, friends, we're in a race. And it's just not about me and it's just not about you. And it's just not about how much we're getting out of the race, but it's, it's how can we make a difference? How can we make a difference? The power of one. You can make a difference at any age. You know the story of the boy with the loaves and fishes. 5,000 plus people and they're hungry. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what do we got to eat? And the disciples are saying, nothing. Jesus said, we'll start looking around. And here was this little lad with his lunch willing to sacrifice it, willing to give it up. And out of that sacrificial giving, Jesus took it and multiplied it, not only to feed the 5,000 plus, but also they had 12 baskets left over simply because there was a little lad that said, I'll give to the master what I have. I'll trust it in his hands. You can make a difference at any age. Sarah, old and barren, and yet... God used her to make a difference. Noah, by the way, when he started building this boat, was 600 years old when he entered the ark. You say, yeah, but Pastor Don, people lived longer back then. It's relevant. You you understand the point that I'm making today, that no matter how old you are, you can make a difference. Whether you're young or whether you're middle-aged or whether you're elderly, you can make a difference. And so Noah's walking along beside us in this race and he keeps whispering in our ear, one can make a difference. One can make a difference. There's another man that I want to call down from this great cloud of witnesses. Probably not as well known, although we read about him. In fact, they named a book in the Bible after him. This is a man by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes and he he finds us on the track of life, running the race. He comes up beside us and he says this, No problem 
is too big when you have help. No problem is too big when you have help. In Nehemiah chapter 2, here are the words. Nehemiah said, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. You've heard Pastor Jack over many, many Sundays use the word rebirthing, that God is taking us through a rebirthing process. And Nehemiah was one who God was using to make an impact on his community. In fact, if I could read you this, as Nehemiah would have been writing to us, here's what he would say. There was a time in my life when everything was going well for me. I had access to the king daily, and I enjoyed the many pleasures of the palace. Mine was a coveted position, one that a foreigner doesn't usually achieve. You could say that I had arrived. Then one day I received word about my hometown, Jerusalem. The walls of the city were in ruin, and the gates had been burned to the ground. The people were unprotected from their many enemies. The news hit me like a blow. I began to weep uncontrollably. The situation was hopeless, and I was helpless to do anything about it. In my grief, I turned to God, and He made me understand something. No problem is too big when you have help. I knew what I had to do. I had to ask the king for help. You see, my question to us today is this. When is the last time you've called on the king? We sang about it this morning. When is the last time have we called on the king? When is the last time that our circumstances have been so difficult that we turn to God and we said, God, King Jesus, I need your help today. Isn't it interesting that usually that is, instead of our first response, it's our last resort? Because we're human and I understand humanity. And here's what happens. When I get into that kind of a situation, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call somebody who will sympathize with me. So I get on the phone and it's ringing and they say, hello. And I go, hello. Hey, who's this? This is Don. Don, how are you today? Not very good. What's going on? And I begin to proceed to tell them all of my woes and all of my troubles and all of my problems. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I wish that was, oh, poor Don, poor Don, poor Don. And then we hang up and that really hasn't solved my problem. So then I pick up the phone again and I ring the doctor's office and I got to have an appointment with Doc. So I get in, and the doc comes in. He says, Don, what's going on? Oh, I'm depressed. 
I'm discouraged. Can you write me out a prescription? Can you give me a little pill that will make things all better? So I take the prescription and I go home and, and lo and behold, a few days pass and nothing seems to get better. So I pick the phone up again and I call the church. Got to talk to a pastor. I'm just so down and so discouraged. So I get an appointment and come in and I talk with the pastor and the pastor says, hey, what's happening? Oh, my friends don't understand me. The doctor didn't make the prescription heavy enough. and I don't know what I'm going to do. Now, for some of you, Matt, that may seem a little facetious, but I would dare to say that's probably very average in most of our lives. So the pastor says, when is the last time you prayed about this? And I go, prayed? Hadn't thought about that. See, I am convinced, and, and we love people, we love to serve people and minister to people, but I am convinced in my heart of hearts that many of the things that we struggle with in life could be dealt with right here at the altar, on our knees, before God, calling out to God, Asking God to meet our need. Asking God to take care of where we are and dealing in our situation. But, but we seem to ignore that step. We hesitate to go to the king for help. The one who has never failed. The one who has never told a lie. The one that we open up scripture and we see where he healed the sick and he raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. He made the lame to walk. He turned water into wine. He calmed the troubled sea. That's the king that I'm talking about. Would it not make sense to go to the king when we need help? And that is what Nehemiah learned. Now, let me fast forward. In fact, we're going to bring Nehemiah out of the Old Testament, and we're going to bring him to Erie, Pennsylvania, 2012. Listen to his new letter that he's written. There was a time in my life when everything was going well for me. I had a steady job. My family was doing well, and I was enjoying good health. My life's plans were coming together, and I considered myself a blessed person. Perhaps there were some people who were a bit envious of my life. Then one day, I received word about my hometown, Erie. My community was one of many needs and challenges. I learned there were over 1,600 homeless people in my city. I also was made aware that the Office of Children and Youth were serving over 2,000 children. The 11,000 people in my city that are unemployed and the 581,000 men and women incarcerated at Erie County Prison was overwhelming to me. I also discovered that 13,000 meals 
were being served by the Erie City Mission each month. I was thankful for those who could help others less fortunate. However, this information hit me hard. I began to weep uncontrollably. The situation in my city seemed hopeless, and I felt helpless to do anything about it. And in my grief, I turned to God, and He made me understand something. No problem is too big when you have help. I knew what I had to do. I asked God to give me the strength and the wisdom to help make a difference in my city. You see, we hear these statistics, and these are as recent as Friday. We hear these numbers, and that doesn't include all of the refugees that come into our city from many, many countries around our world that don't know our culture, that don't understand our language, that don't understand the ways that, that how we live in America, who are desperately needing those to come along beside and love them and help them and support them. And, and so Nehemiah, if you will, in the modern day, looking at his hometown of Erie, and all of a sudden he begins to weep uncontrollably. Can I ask you a question? And I ask myself a question, when is the last time we've wept over our city? When is the last time we've wept over the 1,600 homeless? And that number is very difficult to nail down because it varies so much. When is the last time that we've wept over the two, excuse me, over the 2,000 children that are being served by the Office of Children and Youth? When is the last time have we wept over our city? But God is saying no problem is too big when you have help. You see, we ask for help when the problem is bigger than us. We ask for help when we have shared the problem with God. Nehemiah, before he went to the king, he went to God. God gave him the wisdom to go to the king. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We ask for help when we are willing to do our part. One can make a difference. No problem is too big when you ask for help. So I want to leave you this morning with this encouragement. I hope that you have grasped the very fact that you're in a race. I hope you understand that none of us here today know when that finish line is going to pop up. For some, if you open the newspaper this morning and went to the obituaries, there probably is full of those who did not know the finish line was before them. But until that time comes, until that last breath leaves our body, may I 
pray that the Holy Spirit indelibly stamps into our heart and mind that one can make a difference and no problem is too big when we have help. You see, sometimes God moves before us and sometimes He moves after us, but He never moves without us. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. And I'm just making it very practical this morning. The needs that we have in our church, in our facility, the things that we have need of, there are some of those things that we can pray till we are blue in the face and Gabriel blows his trumpet and they will never be resolved until you and I decide to make a difference. Some wise person wiser than me said one time, it's amazing how much work you can get done when you pick up a shovel. And we can pray, oh God, bless us financially. Oh God, bring in teachers. Oh God, bring in nursery workers. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And probably if we would take a breath and listen close enough, God would be saying, but what about you? Remember Pastor Don's message. One can make a difference. You see, friends, it's not easy to ask for help because not everyone's going to help. But here's what I think in 2012. As we start this year off, may our hearts be determined and may we hear that cry in our heart, run, church, run. Run, church, run. We envision ourselves in a race of life. Run, church, run. And friends, many times... We don't need a miracle. We just need each other. We just need each other. Would you stand with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for another year. And we don't know how far we're going to get in this year. And God, this is not a morbid fixation of life. It's a fact of life. God, we may not get to February or April or June. Father, how glorious it would be, but we may not make it through the month of January before the trumpet sounds and and the skies split open and the church rises to meet Jesus and all things are placed in order. But Father, I pray this morning as we begin this new year, There's a lot of times, Father, that we make resolutions only to be broken. But I pray that this congregation this morning will leave here with these two thoughts indelibly stamped into our minds today. One can make a difference. And there's no problem too big when you have help. So, Father, I pray for our church today. I pray for our leadership I pray for our volunteers who so faithfully serve this congregation. I pray for the outreaches of this church. God, may we understand that one can make a difference. And Father, I just pray that in our heart of hearts, our mindset will be run, church, run. Until Jesus comes 
When God calls us home, may we be found faithful running the race. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Have a blessed week in the Lord. God bless you.